For this morning, let's turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew 2, and we'll go through a very familiar passage to us. Over the past year and a half or so, we've had such an influx of newer members to Grace Bible Church that um, for me as the pastor, I've had to really do some thinking and praying about some topics or passages to maybe circle back to. For me in particular, I'm very passionate about passages of the Bible which are most often misunderstood or ones that I feel are, are so rich and important that we want to redistribute those thoughts from Scripture and return to them particularly for those maybe who haven't been here quite as long. And we come to those one of those today. This is a passage I preached just a couple of years ago. It's relatively recently compared to any repeated passages I usually do. But the fit with our topic for this miniseries was just too rich. We're doing Christmas past and future. And in fact, this particular passage was the inspiration for the entire series to examine the connections, the comparisons, the contrasts between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. That the the connections are so clear that we want to kind of tie those stories together. I have another reason for wanting to preach this passage from Matthew 2. For me personally, this has been one of the most profound experiences of studying the scripture I've ever experienced. It's left me in awe of The God that we have who keeps his promises even over thousands of years. And that all the promises of God that are still unfulfilled, each and every one of them will be brought to fruition in spectacular fashion. So for me, this is just a rich, delightful passage that happens to fit in with this series we're looking at, Christmas Past and Future. And I just, let's just have us read the story here. It's familiar to you, but then we'll, Begin to look at it maybe in a slightly different way than you're used to. Matthew chapter 2 verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Behold wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, And they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. One of our most popular Christmas carols, a favorite among children in particular, We Three Kings of Orient Are. 
It tells the story of Matthew 2, of the wise men traveling from the east to see Jesus. And in the hymn, they're said to be kings of the Orient. Now, when the hymn was written in the mid-1800s, this reflected the popular belief still held today that these men were from exotic, faraway places such as Persia, Babylonia, or even India. There are several popular myths associated with the wise men. Let me just name a few myths that they worshipped Jesus the night that he was born. That's a myth. Actually, the text of Matthew 2 here never says that. And in fact, King Herod, in his attempt to be rid of the king of the Jews, commanded that infants two years old and younger be killed. It's also a myth that the star of Bethlehem hovered over the manger for all to see the night that Jesus was born. Now, don't go home and break off the star from your nativity scenes. It's still nice. But they came long after he is born and all did not see the star. More on that later. And the most popular myth is that there were three wise men. The text never says there were three men. It says there were three gifts. In fact, the evidence I'm going to show you today points to the more likelihood that that there were many more than three. Now, this story is very interesting to us because it seems to just sort of parachute out of nowhere Right here into Matthew 2, these mysterious men appearing simply from the east. Gentiles who come and they give extravagant treasures to Jesus Christ. And and it doesn't seem to make sense to us. They were just rolling along in biblical history and all of a sudden some guys maybe from India show up and then they leave. And that's it. We're never told why. But they treated him like a king and they worshipped him as God. And so they're immortalized as examples of what all men should do with Jesus, falling down before him in adoration. But we should be very clear, nothing in Scripture just drops out of the sky for no apparent reason. Nothing is there that that is not part of a bigger plan. And so this morning, we need to examine this story in light of the bigger picture of redemptive history, in light of God's dealings with his people, really going all the way back to Abraham and the implications for the future as well, particularly concerning the second coming of Christ to earth. So just to kind of organize our thoughts this morning, I want to show you the first visit of the wise men. I want to show you the home of the wise men, the family of the wise men, and then the second visit of the wise men. And I'll name these for you again as we go. But first, let's look at the first visit of the wise men. We'll just briefly walk through this text and I'll point out maybe some interesting notes here. A few months have passed since the birth of Jesus. Mary and Joseph are still staying in Bethlehem. They're just about five and a half miles or so south of Jerusalem. Baby Jesus has already been circumcised. Mary had completed her time of purification according to the law. And the little family is now staying in a house. They are in a home of some sort. Luke chapter 2 verse 7 says this. Now, because the wise men had not yet come, the family was still poor. How do we know this? They had offered the prescribed purification sacrifice of a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Luke 2, 24 tells us this instead of the normal lamb. Why why did they do that? Because the birds were an acceptable sacrifice for a poor family, for a, a family of humble means. We get the bigger political picture in verse one in the days of Herod, the king. The wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. They inquired of Herod, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? 
Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. This news troubled Herod and it troubled all of Jerusalem. Now we can guess why it would trouble Herod. He's the king of the Jews. Anyone else making that claim is directly challenging his right to rule. But why would this trouble Jerusalem? Why would the whole city be agitated by the wise men coming? Well, first of all, we have to understand Herod himself. There are several Herods in the Bible. This is Herod the Great. What happened with him? Julius Caesar had appointed his father to be governor of Judea during the Roman occupation, and his father managed to have his son Herod appointed as governor of Galilee to the north. Now, during this time, there were, there were groups of Jewish rebels, and they were fighting for independence from Rome. They were making trouble. They were making raids in Herod's jurisdiction, and Herod was crushing them mercilessly. He was a, he was a wicked, cruel man. Well, then the Parthians invaded Palestine, invaded Israel, and Herod, in fact, he had to run for his life. He had to run to Egypt. But he went to Rome, and he made a deal with Octavian, who would later be known as Augustus Caesar, with Octavian and Mark Antony. He basically said, make me the king of all the Jews, and I'll crush the Parthians. And that's exactly what happened in 37 B.C. And so from 37 B.C. onward, Herod the Great was now the king of the Jews. This is actually very ironic because Herod was an Idumean, an Edomite, a descendant of Esau, not Jacob. He was clever. He was a thinker. He was a strategist. So he did several things. He married a high-ranking Jewish woman. He helped the Jews through economic hardship, and he even funded a massive remodeling project for the temple in Jerusalem just to endear himself to the people. But there was a line you did not cross with Herod, and that was you never threatened his rule. He eventually had his own wife, two of his brothers-in-law, his mother-in-law, and two of his own sons murdered because he suspected them of treason. Basically, his whole family. In fact, five days before he died, he had his third son executed. When Jesus was about a year old, right before Herod's death, Herod had the most important citizens in Jerusalem imprisoned. And he gave orders that the minute he died, all the prisoners were to be executed. Now, why would he do this? Because he knew that there was no one who would mourn for him when he died. And so he guaranteed that when he died, there would be weeping and mourning all through Jerusalem. But it would be for these men who had been executed, not for him. He wanted it to look like mourning was for him. He was wicked to the core. He was the epitome of tyranny and despotism. And so now, at the age of about 70, Herod gets a visit from wise men from the east, and these wise men are saying, the true king of the Jews has been born. Why would this trouble Herod? Because he lived for power. Why would this trouble Jerusalem? Because when Herod gets mad, people die. Heads roll, blood is shed. And so they knew that was coming. Well, Herod consulted with all the chief priests and the scribes, those who were expert in Old Testament prophecy, to find out where the Messiah, the Christ, was supposed to be born. And in verses 4 through 6, they rightly answered him from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, in Bethlehem. And, and notice this, by the way. It's interesting to me how seemingly indifferent the unbelieving chief priests and scribes, the official religious leaders of Israel, they were indifferent to the possibility that their Messiah had come that he had been born. They just didn't care. 
And so Herod gets information from the indifferent chief priests and scribes that Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. So Herod brings the wise men back and he lies to them. Verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. Here's the lie. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. In fact, it's just the opposite. Herod intended to murder the Lord Jesus. But at the time, the wise men, the magi, they don't know that. So they go on their way and the star leads them to the house that Jesus is staying in. Now, we should note a significant aspect of the star. Scripture never says that anyone except the wise men could see the star. They're the only ones. The star had shone in the east. That's where they were from. But the text doesn't explicitly say that they followed the star. The fact that they had to inquire of Herod where Messiah was going to be born tells us that the star just got them going. But now the star reappears. It comes a second time. And it brought them not only to Bethlehem, but now to the exact house where Jesus was several months after his birth. And how did they respond to the God-given revelation of Christ? Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. All their longing was over. All their searching was over. They had no farther to go. The Messiah they had heard of in the shadows of prophecies was now presented in, in the brilliance of the glory of God resting over the house in which the baby king of the Jews rested in his mother's arms. And I think it's important to note, this is not the wise men receiving Christ. This is Christ receiving the wise men. And they are overwhelmed with rejoicing. In verse 11, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And then they're warned in the dream, Not to return to Herod, they departed a different way. What is verse 11? Verse 11 is the act of repentant men. This is the act of men who know that Christ is worthy and they are not. This is the act of men who understand that the worth and the value and the merit of Jesus Christ was worth traveling these many weeks, these many miles for the privilege of humiliating themselves in a small house with a dirt floor in the presence of their Savior, Why did they do this? Because for all of their knowledge, for all of their wealth, for all of their prestige, all of their glorious history, one thing they could not do for themselves was to atone for their sin. They needed a Savior. They opened their treasures, plural, treasure boxes, trunks, just generally something in which you place treasures. This wasn't, if you've seen this depicted as, as a little box with maybe a, a gold coin or something, this is, this is servants dragging huge boxes into this little house, taking up all the real estate in this little house here. And they give these famous gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Scripture fully inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit wants to make certain we know the exact gifts that are being given. And in the ancient Near East, especially from the wise men, gifts were not given haphazardly. They didn't just go on Amazon and say, let's see what's on sale. Oh, that looks good. No, the gifts had meaning. They had import. They had, they had sim- symbolism. They had purpose. They showed their accurate view of Jesus Christ. 
They acknowledged, first of all, that he is the king. They gave him gold. Gold has universally been a symbol of royalty, of, of rule. A thousand years earlier, the queen of Sheba came to give honor and tribute to King Solomon. And he brought, 1 Kings 10, spices and very much gold. The queen did. So they acknowledged his status as king. They also acknowledged his worth. They acknowledged his worth. They gave frankincense. This is an oil that was costly. It was used on only the most special of occasions. It has a scent like pine and honey and lemon, and it's considered a a treasure. It's unique. But they also acknowledged his humility. They gave him myrrh. Myrrh was less expensive than frankincense, still valuable, but considered more common. It was more like the common man's perfume or spice. Myrrh would also be given to Jesus two more times. Myrrh was also used as an anesthetic. Mark 15 records that myrrh mixed with wine was offered to Jesus right before his crucifixion, but he refused it so that he would fully experience the agony of taking the wrath of God upon himself without any numbing, without any relief. And then myrrh was given to Jesus one last time as body was wrapped in burial cloths saturated in myrrh and other spices each time myrrh was given to jesus it's associated with his pain it's associated with his death it's associated with his humility now we don't know if the wise men were fully aware of the fact that jesus would grow up to die and be the sacrifice for their sins but they they did at some level understand and acknowledge his humility i mean after all they're worshiping god who is a baby was a child. Now, before we leave this part of our message, I would like to mention the star. The star of Christ has not only been the discussion, major discussion by theologians, but also by astronomers. Some think it was a meteor. Others think it was a comet. Others think it was a particularly bright planet or a literal star. Some think it was a a lining up of planets like Jupiter and Saturn. Some think it it was a nova, which is an explosion on a star. Others think it was a supernova, an explosion of a star. But none of those explanations fit with verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. What does that mean? It means that the star came twice. Uh, Two supernovas? Who knows? We could make a pretty strong case that the star was actually a group of angels leading the wise men. There's reasonable evidence for this. And if I search back in my own notes, I may have actually preached that in the past. But the best evidence of all is not found from science. We don't use science to figure out the Bible. That's ridiculous. The best evidence of all is from the scriptures itself. And that is that the star is simply the glory of God manifested as light. The same manifestation of God's glory which appeared to Israel as a, as a pillar of fire by night when he led them through the wilderness to Canaan 1,500 years earlier. This is very powerful because the glory of God resting over Bethlehem has massive significance. 600 years earlier, just before the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians because of the centuries of centuries of disobedience, by the Jews, the prophet Ezekiel prophesied that something terrible, something unspeakable was going to happen in Jerusalem. More terrible than invasion, more terrible than death, more terrible than destruction. 
God would leave them. Ezekiel 10 records the glory of God rising from the temple in Jerusalem in what appeared to Ezekiel as a massive heavenly chariot and departing through the eastern gate. 600 years earlier, the glory of God left Israel. But now the glory of God has returned to Israel in the person of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So that's the first visit of the wise men. Second, let's look at the home of the wise men. The home of the wise men, where were the wise men from? Why would they, as Gentiles, be so interested in the king of the Jews? In fact, not just interested, but worshipers who, for all intents and purposes, are acting like they found the very purpose of their lives. This is the culminating moment of their lives. The predominant view of where the wise men were from has a lot of support, both in history and also in the reasonable possibility that they were uh, from a tradition influenced greatly by the prophet Daniel. Six centuries back in Babylon, which would have been taken over by Persia in Daniel's time. So that view has a lot of merit to it. I've preached that view. I, I think it's probably the most, uh, the strongest view that we could, at least in, in terms of speculation, have. Because they seem very oriental as the hymn says they seem persian they seem very different from what the bible would say is the person most likely in the in the bible is the as the ancient near eastern these are these are more exotic type of men they're different and so the predominant view is that these wise men were were pagan priests or astrologers from persia or chaldean astrologers from mesopotamia what used to be babylon what the hymn writer calls the Orient, that they were exotic, they were different. And you've seen, you've seen pictures of them and they, they, they look different, they look exotic. There's actually some good reasons for this view. We have the many uses of the word magi. It's, it's the word translated in your Bible, wise men. It's the Greek word magos, the plural magoi. And this is a term strongly associated with the pagan priest class of of the Persians, astrologers, fortune tellers, kind of a practice, those who practice the, the dark magic arts. Ancient historians such as Pliny and Tacitus associated magi with sorcery. In fact, we get our word magic from magi. There's another good reason for this view, the highlight of astronomy in this account. We, we see a star. The Magi are traditionally associated strongly with the study of the stars, of the sky. And so seeing the star of Bethlehem, right up their alley, it seems like. And then you have the strong testimony of the early church fathers. Clement of Alexandria, John Chrysostom, Cyril of Jerusalem believed that the Magi came from Persia. Jerome and Augustine believed them to be astrologers from Babylon. And so based on this predominant view... Many traditions developed, almost all of them now portray these men as three kings from various parts of the world. The most famous tradition comes from Armenia, that we have Balthazar, the king of Arabia, Gaspar, the king of India, and Melchior, the king of Persia. But if you put together all the known traditions from ancient sources, there are at least 30 different names from multiple ethnic groups, Persians, Indians, Parthians, Assyrians, Medes, Many, many other, many, many others. And so the church's view historically 
has been that these men were from Persia or Babylon. We kind of can narrow it down to that. Other traditions have them coming from various parts of the world. The weakness to this view, though, is that the only connection to the redemptive scope, the redemptive story of biblical history, is speculation. That if they're from Persia, which used to be Babylon, then they're being influenced by the writings of the prophet Daniel. But there's actually nothing in the text of Scripture to tell us that. It's a good guess, but it is a guess. There's one view, though, that presents the very strongest actual evidence. And so let's do a little investigation. And this will, I promise you, connect the overall scope of redemptive history to the wise men. And that is the view that the Magi, the wise men, were from Arabia. They were from Arabia, the area on the other side of the Jordan River and the Dead Sea from Israel. Really simple geography lesson here. You have, you have the Jordan River going down like this, and from your vantage point, Israel is on this side, Arabia is over here. It's very simple, to the east. I'll give you five clues that the Magi were from Arabia. And you may be asking, why are we doing a geography lesson? I promise this will, this will make sense. First clue, the term Magi itself. Most of the ways magi has been used in history is generally negative from a biblical standpoint to mean fortune tellers, sorcerers, magicians, the occultic arts, astrologers, and so forth. But it's also been used in a neutral sense as someone simply possessing supernatural knowledge and ability, someone seeking wisdom. That's why we call them the wise men. For example, in the days of King Nebuchadnezzar, the faithful Jew Daniel was appointed chief of whom? The magi. Now, obviously, the term used here in Matthew, it can't be speaking of astrologers, can't be speaking of fortune tellers, can't be speaking of magicians or wizards. These are monotheistic worshipers of God. They believe that God has come in the flesh, Jesus Christ. So that you can't be both. And the term has been used to refer to people other than Persians or Chaldeans or Babylonians. And so it's a, it's a broad term. So the term magi alone is very open to simply being faithful spiritual men seeking wisdom, which may or may not be from Persia or Babylonia. And again, Daniel, the prophet of God, was called one of the magi. He was the head of the magi. The second clue. The second clue is the testimony of the early church fathers, other ones. In A.D. 155, Justin Martyr wrote in his work, Dialogue with Trypho, he said nine times that the Magi were from Arabia. Now, Justin was born in 100 A.D. in Samaria, just north of Israel, literally in the next generation after the apostles. Around 208 A.D. in Carthage, North Africa, the famous Christian theologian Tertullian, he wrote in his famous work against Marcion that the Magi were kings from Arabia. He specifically called the East Arabia. He specifically mentions that Arabia was notably known for uh, gold and spices such as frankincense and myrrh. In fact, Tertullian was the first teacher that we know of to say that the Magi were kings. He also asserts that at the second coming of Christ, Messiah will again receive the wealth of, of Arabia in a time of peace and prosperity. And around 96 AD, Clement of Rome wrote a letter to the church at Corinth And he identified the regions of the east as the country of Arabia, rich in frankincense, myrrh, and gold. The third clue, the geography itself. The Magi are said to be from the east. 
Now, the east is a, a very specific geographic reference to Arabia in both Old Testament and New Testament times. Judges 3, Jeremiah 49, Ezekiel 25 all tell us this. Now, for us, because of culture, because of tradition, and because we're so far removed uh, geographically, when we read the east in the Bible, the tendency is to think of Babylon, Persia, and India. That has always been the tendency. But if you live in Israel... During biblical times, to go to Babylon, Persia, or India, you didn't go east, you went north. You went north. You just look at a map and you can figure that out. And anyone coming to the land of Israel from those countries entered from the north across the Fertile Crescent. And so Babylon and Persia were considered the land of the north. And in fact, the Bible speaks of the Assyrians and the Babylonians in Isaiah 14, Jeremiah 1, Zephaniah 2, Zechariah 2, as the people of the north. Three times in Isaiah, Isaiah 41 twice, Isaiah 46 once, Cyrus of Persia is said to be from the east. Yes, that's Persia, but that wasn't a geographical designation. The normal word translated east is not used here. Instead, it's a, it's a word that just means in front of or at the rising of the sun. Or to put it this way for us, it just means a word that says that way, generally speaking. But that particular technical word for east is never used in the Old Testament to refer to Persia or Babylon, but rather to Arabia, to the desert, east of Israel. Isaiah 41, Jeremiah 50, Jeremiah 51, Persia is in the north, Arabia is in the east. And so it's much more accurate to say the east is the region of Arabia, which is due east of the Jordan River and the Dead Sea. There's a fourth clue. How about the gifts of the Magi? And I've, I've alluded to this already, so I won't belabor the point. But in the ancient Near East, as early as the 5th century B.C., Arabia was known as the country that specialized in producing spices, especially frankincense and myrrh. Ancient historians, such as Herodotus and Pliny, both separately wrote that southern Arabia was the only country in all of the ancient Near East that produced frankincense and potentially myrrh also. The history of Arabia being the center of spice production is extensive. In fact, the ancient Greek historian Diodorus, who died just 30 years before the time of Christ, he witnessed that the kingdom of Sheba, in particular in Arabia, became the wealthiest kingdom in the entire ancient world. Why? Because the spice trade was to the ancient world what oil is today. Diodorus also witnessed that Arabia had another plentiful resource, gold. He wrote this, quote, There is also mined in Arabia the gold called fireless, which is not smelted from ores as is done among other peoples, but is dug directly from the earth. It is found in nuggets about the size of chestnuts. So from that clue, the chest full of gold probably wasn't gold dust. It was probably chunks of gold. And the fifth clue, God's protective plan of his re- protection of his redemptive plan. God's protection of his redemptive plan. Specifically, God uses Egypt and Arabia. Joseph, when he was threatened by his brothers back in the Old Testament, is sold by Arabian spice traders for survival. He's protected in Egypt in preparation for his providential rise to power. Moses' life was threatened twice. As an infant, he was rescued by a princess of Egypt. And as an adult, he was rescued by fleeing to Midian or Arabia. 
And kings or wise men from Arabia came and gave to Jesus the wealth of their land. Even a small amount of gold and frankincense and myrrh would have been enough to live on for a very, very long time. What happened when the wise men left? Verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And there, remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. What was happening? God was protecting and providing for Jesus and his family, protecting his redemptive plan. Now, you still might be asking, who cares where they were from? What's the point? Let's look at the third part of this. We'll call this the family of the wise men. The family of the wise men. Who are the wise men? Who were they? Now that we know they're from Arabia, the next question obviously would be, was there a group of people living in Arabia who had a vested interest in seeing the Messiah of Israel come and who would give incredible, vast wealth And would also worship him. And if so, why are they included in scripture? Remember that God never just drops random stories into the text which have no connection, no bearing on his plan of of redemption. That that doesn't happen. Uh, There's no verse in scripture that says, in parentheses, by the way, some guy from Santa Fe, New Mexico worships Jesus also. That makes no sense. For the sake of time, I want to walk through this with you briefly and suggest maybe you note the references. I don't have time to have you turn to all of them. But let's walk through some redemptive history. In Genesis chapter 12, God makes his covenant with Abram. God has chosen this man to be his means of effecting his redemptive plan from sin on the earth. And he promises to Abram, he promises to Abraham that he will be made into a great nation. His name will be great. And in him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. We've taught this many times before that obviously the nation that is promised is Israel. All the families of the earth are blessed in that it's through Israel that Christ comes and will live a perfect sinless life. He'll die on the cross to pay for the sins of all who would believe on him. So every nation is blessed. But in Genesis 17, God gets more specific about this covenant with Abram. That Abraham will be the father of a multitude of nations and kings will come from Abraham. The land of Egypt, the land of Israel rather, will be given to the specific great nation uh, for all time. Chapter 17, verse 8 in Genesis. Later in Genesis 17, God promises that this great nation will come through a singular son yet to be born through Abraham and this would be Isaac. He's important to remember. Isaac would be the son of blessing, the son of promise. And of course, through Isaac came Jacob, and through Jacob came the nation of Israel. And even more information is given in Genesis 22 that in the offspring of Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. In fact, the Apostle Paul commented on this promise in Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring. That is Christ. And eventually the mother of Isaac, Abraham's beloved Sarah, died. What happened next? Genesis 25, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, 
Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephur, Hanak, Abida, and Elda'a. All these were the children of Keturah. Now you may recall that before Isaac was born, the child of promise, Abraham had taken matters into his own hands to try to speed God's plan along. And he had a son through his wife's servant, and the son's name was Ishmael. What happened to Ishmael? To avoid massive family conflict, Abraham had to send Ishmael and his mother away, as recorded in Genesis 21. And in fact, Ishmael's genealogy is recorded later in chapter 25 with his sons listed as well. But back to the sons of Keturah, Abraham's second wife. These were not sons of promise. These were not the one Isaac through whom the one chosen nation would come. But these were Abraham's boys, and he loved them. Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, Shua, and they had sons, including Sheba and Dedan and others. What did Abraham have to do to keep Isaac the sole heir of God's promises to Abraham, to keep potential war from happening in generations to come? Genesis 25, beginning of verse 5, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. Sons of his concubines, this most likely refers to Hagar, the mother of Ishmael, and Keturah, who probably had been a servant of Sarah as well. Why did he send them away? They could not be a threat to Isaac, the promised son, the legal firstborn of Abraham's household. And so to keep family peace, the family had to be separated because entire nations were forming at this point. And so what we really have here is a sad family situation. God promised Abraham a son through whom would come the promised nation of Israel, through whom the world would come to know God through Christ. But Abraham and Sarah couldn't be patient, so they had Ishmael through Hagar. Abraham even asked God to make Ishmael the promised son. God said no. And then after his beloved Sarah died, Abraham married again, having six more sons through Keturah. And because Isaac was the promised child, Abraham had to send away Ishmael and the sons of Keturah, never to see them again. You cannot take the emotion out of this and just glibly pass by that Abraham sent seven of his boys away. He sent them away with gifts, meaning enough to provide for them for the rest of their lives, to make them wealthy and to give them a start in life. And then he would never see them again. I think it's reasonable to assume that there would be weeping in Abraham's tent for many months. And where were the sons of Keturah sent? Where did they settle? They went to Arabia. Remember, God promised not only would a great and chosen nation come from him, but all the nations of the world would be blessed. It was always God's plan to offer salvation from sin to the Gentiles to those not descended specifically from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so what happened to the sent away sons of Abraham? What happened to the the, the sons of Keturah? 
My original question, was there a group of people living in Arabia who had a vested interest in seeing the Messiah of Israel, the single offspring, the single seed, and who would give him incredible great wealth and who would worship him? There is only one group that fits that category, the wise men. Those looking for spiritual truth, they were descended from the sons of Keturah, dismissed by Abraham and yet looking to a future hope of a family reunion. And in the long, everlasting, unforgotten family ties and connections of the ancient Near East, the sons of Keturah would know that the descendant of Isaac, of Jacob, of Judah, of David, of Mary, the promised offspring who would bless all peoples, would be their cousin, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, the sons of Keturah found their family. And in Jesus Christ, the wise men of Keturah found their Savior. Now, we started with the first visit of the wise men. That implies a second visit. And that's our fourth point, the second visit of the wise men. Because really what we're leading up to here is why are the Magi almost certainly the descendants of Abraham, important in the scope of redemptive history. Why are they here? Well, they prove that God is faithful to his promises beginning to end. They prove this. How do we know that God is faithful? Because the other sons of Abraham find their place in the future kingdom of God as well. Let me prove to you this from prophecy. Psalm 72, you don't have to turn there. I'll just walk through it with you briefly. But Psalm 72 is a royal psalm written by King Solomon, son of David, and it's a request for great blessing on Solomon. But as you read through Psalm 72, you quickly see that Solomon is looking beyond just himself. He's looking to a future king whose reign is far greater, far more vast. Psalm 72, 8 and 9 says, May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. What is this? That's worldwide dominion. Solomon never had that. And in verse 10 of Psalm 72, Solomon offers a prayer, a prophetic wish. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. Who are the kings of Sheba? Sheba was the grandson of Abraham and Keturah settling and forming the great nation of Sheba in Arabia. And Solomon prays in Psalm 72, verse 11, May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. Psalm seventy-two, seventeen: May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. And so in the future, the question then, According to this prophecy, will the Arabian tribes descended from Keturah and those descended from Ishmael, will they bring him gifts? Will they bring Jesus Christ gifts as Psalm 72.10 predicts? The future glory of Israel and Israel's Messiah in the future reigning on earth in the millennial kingdom is described in Isaiah 60 and listen to their glorious hope. 
This is the future. Isaiah 60, beginning in verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around, and see, they all gather together. They come to you. Your sons, that is all of Israel, shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. But then, Isaiah 60 gets very, very specific about some of the peoples who will be coming to worship and to give tribute, to give gifts to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Beginning in verse 5, Isaiah 60 says, Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you, that is to Messiah. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my house. Verses 6 and 7, the multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian, that is Abraham's son, through Keturah and Ephah, that's Abraham's grandson, son of Midian, son of Keturah. And all those from Sheba shall come, Abraham's grandson, son of Jokshan, son of Keturah. All the flocks of Kedar, that is the son of Ishmael, shall be gathered to you. And the rams of Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, they shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. In other words, The Lord Jesus Christ will receive these gifts from the wise men of Arabia in the future millennial kingdom and he will take these gifts to beautify his house in Jerusalem. And what gifts will the sons of Keturah bring? You want to take a wild guess? Verse 6 of Isaiah 60. Just like once upon a time they shall bring gold and frankincense. No myrrh. Why no myrrh? Myrrh is associated with the death of Christ in the New Testament, both as the anesthetic offered to him at the cross and as a spice soaking the grave clothes of Christ. But now he ever lives. No myrrh. In fact, myrrh is never again mentioned in the Bible in association with Christ after the cross, ever. His death is complete. He was raised from the dead. Sins completely paid for. He was the once for all sacrifice which satisfied the righteous anger of God against your sin. And so we see that God is a redeeming God who always keeps his promises, who will always save the elect, a God whom you can trust. And through the wise men, men who were wise because they worshiped the true and living God in the person of Jesus Christ, we see the principle illustrated which Paul gave us in Galatians 3.29 If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The sons of Keturah came home briefly when they worshipped the Lord Jesus as a baby. They will come home again. When they march into Jerusalem with their gifts once again, reunited with their father Abraham and with their savior and cousin, Jesus Christ. And if you've trusted Christ as your savior, According to Galatians 3.29, you're part of that family as well. You are part of that family. 
Let's pray and then we will go to the Lord's table together. Our Father, we thank you for this time that we have had. We thank you, Lord, for the, the wonder and the might and the majesty of your word. Lord, it is a, an awe-inspiring thing to see that your plan of redemption does not leave a single detail out. And all those that you have promised to save, you will save. And the means of that salvation is the cross of Jesus Christ, the chosen one, the truest offspring of Abraham. And we look now to remember the cross and we thank you from the bottom of our hearts for the salvation and the redemption that is offered through Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen.